Hello and welcome to the Essential B2B podcast. I am your host, Brand Awareness Manager for Lead Forensics, Joe Ducaro, and today I'm joined by Clark Boyd. Good morning, Clark. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. All the better for speaking to you. Thanks very much. Uh, Clark is a consultant, lecturer, and industry expert advisor, and his incredible weekly newsletter, High Tech, gives data analysis on all sorts of topics. So to jump in then, Clark... What do you think the future of marketing looks like? I've been thinking about this question quite a lot, Joe, as you can imagine. And my almost cheesy response to that, but I'll substantiate it in a moment, is that it looks a lot like what the past of marketing looked like. And I mean going back to the pre-digital age. I think we're finally going to see something of a synthesis between those old marketing ideas that we in the digital age some of us, myself, I'm certainly guilty of this. We have thought were outdated and maybe didn't matter so much because we had so much data to work with and we had these performance channels that were almost like money-making machines. Now, it seemed like the ROI would never go beneath one. You know, we were just printing money, it felt like. And obviously, we've reached a point where that doesn't seem to be the case. We've realized some of the ways we were calculating that ROI maybe weren't quite as accurate as we thought. And that maybe some of those old ideas have a lot more weight than we thought. And and when I say those old ideas, I mean talking about customer centricity. I'm talking about ways of understanding external market forces of marketing being part of every function within a business, not just a separate function that sits out on its own. And it feels a little bit like we have moved too far in that direction in the last 15, 20 years, become our own little specialism that sits to the side other departments don't necessarily know what we do, but you know, we've got the, the magic formula to keep the money rolling in through, whether it's LinkedIn ads, paid search ads, whatever. And I think the future of marketing is going to be us going back to basics, synthesizing it with what we have learned in the digital age, a lot of which is very, very valuable. It's just not the only answer and bringing them together. The reason we're doing that is because we have to. I don't think we're doing it through choice or any newfound respect for 1970s academics. I think we are going into an age where we're going to be more thoughtful about the data that we capture. We're going to have to think about one-to-one customer connections, whether it is in B2B or B2C, I think the same questions are going to come up. The answers will be different, that's the key part, but, but the questions I think are very similar. And we're going to have to understand people a lot better, understand that the data we've been looking at is nothing more than just a little mathematical collection, a little a little trail that they've left behind as they've gone around the internet. And when we don't have those breadcrumbs as much anymore, we're going to have to figure out a bit more about people themselves. So in a nutshell, as cheesy as it sounds, I do think it's going to be about revisiting some of the old ideas and giving them a, a digital facelift because with, with less data at our disposal, they're going to become more valuable. This idea of customer centricity will go beyond being a buzzword to a genuine practice that we all do every day. I mean, you touched very briefly then on, you know, on um, the difference between B2B and B2C. Obviously, this is the essential B2B podcast. So in terms of more specifically to B2B, then how do you think it will change in that sense? So it, it is going to be challenging in some regards, because when we talk about the B2C side of it, and we talk about moving away from having all of this tracking data and having third-party cookies and being able to stitch together those individual paths, that's not really what we're dealing with anyway in B2B. We're talking about 
decision-making processes that are ongoing. So they, the journey doesn't even stop when they purchase a solution to solve a certain problem that they're having as a business. They immediately go into evaluating that as well. So you've got overlapping waves here of evaluation stages, probably about four stages within that, from initial awareness through to re-evaluation. But then you've got the fact that the decision-making journey itself is networked internally. So I'm actually writing a research paper on this at the moment. So it's it's either a good or a bad time to ask me. I don't know. We'll see in a minute when <laughs> I've, I've rambled on here. But we're, what we're finding is that people are focusing on, say, account-based marketing, or they're focusing on just going for a certain business or a certain kind of client or thinking, what do CEOs read? We need to go after the CEOs but not realizing that there's an internal network of influencers that ultimately shape the decision and, and that actually acts as a filter for what the CEO ends up reading. There are people who are more respected within the organization who go out and do the research and then pass on the best stuff. And they want to pass on the things that make them look good. They aren't going to choose the ultimate solution, but you need to be giving them the ammunition they need to go to the CEO and say, I think you should choose company X over Y and Z. So in that regard, the thinking behind it is pretty different, I think, to B2C. I think often people say, well, they're kind of similar because you're still dealing with people. I would read it the other way. I would say actually B2C is more similar to B2B often than what we think than B2B being close to B2C. And I mean that because every business has to market to other businesses all the time. If you're a B2C company, you are not only marketing to that, that end customer who buys you know, your credit card or whatever. You're always marketing to other companies, you're in partnerships, you're in an ecosystem. So really, I think it's actually the other way around. It's B2B that forms the heart of what we know about marketing and what we're dealing with, and B2C that is the adjunct to that, that extends beyond it. And with B2B, with less data, at your disposal, being able to track individuals. Well, I don't know that you were ever able to really track that journey in the way you wanted to anyway, because you couldn't see internally what was going on. What you had to have was that true insight into how our organizations function today. And you had to have that combination of data with the gut instinct of knowing the market. I say gut instinct, that sounds like it's a pejorative, but I mean it in terms of you know it inside out, you know, you know what feels right, you know how these businesses function, you don't need to track them, you know, don't need to spend a million dollars tracking people, you know how it works. So in the future of B2B marketing, I think it's more sophisticated approaches to content marketing, understanding those journeys, putting the information out of the right places, and allowing sophisticated customers to go and find those pieces of information, piece them together themselves, and pick up on little signals along the way and adapt. Now you mentioned personalization, it just hasn't happened at all. You know, I was I was promoting this in sales decks 10 plus years ago, definitely maybe a bit longer than that. We were saying we can personalize everything for you, but really we meant we'll put your customer's name in an email. And you know, if that's what being a person is all about, then it's, it's quite insulting to the customer. I think actually there's a lot more going on there. And what B2B companies I think are going to be able to do is generate the trust with customers that means that they can find out a little bit more about them. I'm dealing with a lot of businesses at the moment in both spaces, B2B and B2C, mainly B2B, I'll be honest, but um, they're all asking the same question. Now, how do we go out and get data direct from customers now if we're not going to be able to just go and say, buy it from somebody or it's going to be more difficult? And the problem they have is that every single company is asking that question. So if you're the customer at the end of it, 
you're going to have thousands of companies trying to find out your preferences and ask you to do little surveys and respond to games and so that they can get your data. The B2B companies, what I think they've always known is the importance of that trust and long-term relationship and that you can put a customer off by being too pushy, by not understanding them. You know, the, those things are baked into B2B marketing. So in, in some ways puts it in a better place, but I think they have to extend that a bit more. So how can you build a relationship and get the customer to essentially tell you what they're looking for so that you can provide better services. And uh, I, I want to <laughs> move on to your uh, to the the high tech newsletter and you're writing that sort of thing. So you you write about so many different topics. And actually, I've got a couple of examples that I do want to you know dig down into a little bit further. But how do you stay informed? How do you stay across so much information? Oh. Uh, I tell you, honestly, Joe, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it is driving me a bit mad. I'd love to say that I've got some breezy system that just brings this all, all to my, my fingertips every morning, or I've got, you know, 20 or 30 people out researching and just a bit like those B2B internal influencers, just sending me all the stuff I need. I started the newsletter really as a challenge to myself because I thought there's a lot of stuff I don't really know about. But the best way to learn about things I've certainly learned in the past five or six years is to teach it. You know, you really do understand by teaching something how you maybe don't quite understand that concept like you thought or you know, people just didn't understand it like you wanted them to. So I thought if every single week I take another topic and I go away and learn about it and then I, I write what is, you know, my readers would certainly say is an essay, not really a newsletter, then I will at least have learned about it and I will hopefully be telling other people about something in a way that they can learn about it too. But we're now at edition, I think, 135 or something. So you're right. I look back at it and think, what, what was I talking about with, you know, the over 60s in China and how they use this specific app? You know, what, what was I doing that week? And it certainly does infringe, I think, upon my actual <laughs> paid work that I'm doing because the newsletter remains free. And it does take up quite a bit of time and all my free time goes into it. So evenings, weekends are and have been spent for the last three years on the, the newsletter. I think it says more about my social life or lack thereof and <laughs> my manic determination to do something if I've set my mind to it than anything else. I, I want to talk to you now about, I mentioned that we were going to bring up a couple of um, topics from your newsletter. You correctly predicted the Euro 2020 results. So could you just take us through the, the process there? I'm so glad you asked this, Joe. I have been desperate to talk about it ever since. And I was saying last week, actually, I, it's the only newsletter where I've, I've lost quite a lot of subscribers. I think the one where I lost the subscribers was when I posted about having been right. And it was quite smug. Don't think there's any doubt about that. I Photoshopped my head onto, remember Paul the Octopus from the like World Cup or something about 15 yeah, years yeah. ago, who predicted all these <laughs> games and everything. And I called myself the Octopus and people didn't like it. They did it. <laughs> Normally, it's quite a self-deprecatory newsletter. But yes, I did more by, let's be honest, by chance than anything else. Predict not only that Italy would win, but then also that Italy would draw 1-1 with England in the final and win on penalties. And I did a lot of data analysis. No doubt about that. Um, I downloaded quite a lot of data, brought them all together ran my analysis in R and in Python and visualized it to try and understand where all these patterns were. So getting data from 
uh, from who scored, why scored, and all those places, you know, up to people get their data from for these sorts of things. But the idea then is to try and layer on some qualitative data as well, because you can run all of this. And it essentially told me France is definitely going to win the Euros. I mean, everything pointed towards that. I was just, I come up with my own metrics to understand the quality of players that they had based on the teams that they had played for and the performance of those teams over the, the prior season. And France just had a team of all-stars, you know, playing for Real Madrid, they just won the Champions League, Paris Saint-Germain had done really well as well. But then you start layering on things, well, I do hear there's a bit of discord among their team though, so maybe I'll weight them down a little bit, which is just complete subjective. It's just a value judgment from me going, on one hand, it's going to be so easy for me to say, yep, the bookies say France are going to win, and I also say that, because that's how they came up with it, kind of. But I wanted to go for someone a little bit further down the list and started looking at the patterns within at least play. And this is, the, this is where I got really interested in it myself, because I started matching them up amongst each other and thinking, well, which types of team tend to do well at international tournaments? And Italy have a history of not being fancied, and then those are the times they always do well. But I also looked at their manager, so Mancini, and his record in club football, and all the things that I'd heard about the way he was bringing the team together. I thought, ah, this is quite intriguing. But when it came to the final, I went into much more detail. I was able to match up, because I had data then from the tournament, not a huge sample size, but I could see, okay, this is how England are going to play, this is how Italy are going to play. These are going to be the deciding factors in the game, and... I thought when it comes down to penalties, as I reckoned it would, it's England. Italy will win it. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, I've got to ask you this. Though. Did you put any money on it at all? Or <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not enough to make a huge difference. I, I, I did win a little bit. And I did encourage my readers to do it. None of them did. None of them did. It... <laughs> I, I didn't say all this with a huge amount of confidence either because, I mean predictions are obviously it was all based on probability and it could just as easily have blown up in my face so people have started asking about the world cup edition and i'm like do i just leave it there because i will never get that lucky again well i don't know i mean i, I think you've got to haven't you surely <laughs> sort of have i've said it now haven't i better get reading i'm afraid so you heard it here first mm. <laughs> so I want to get slightly more sort of into, into you as a as a person then, Clark. What really motivates you at the start of your day or your week? I mean, I know you mentioned that, you know, Monday, Tuesday, getting all your client work done so you can do the newsletter. But um, what what is it that gets you out of bed every morning? You know, I've always wanted to do one of those day in the life things because I've known quite a few people that have done these for, like, you know, the drum and marketing week and stuff. And... If you were reading it, I, personally, I would feel a bit intimidated if I didn't know the people. But because I know them, I know that they're lying and that their day does not look anything like that. They're definitely not up at 5 a.m. watching the sunrise and just thanking the Lord for the day ahead of them. Like They're stumbling out of bed at 8.30 at hungover and <laughs> grabbing a bacon sandwich on the way to the office. And I, <laughs> so it makes me a little bit cynical about all of these things. So... I guess I'd probably be honest about about my own in keeping with that, not to be too hypocritical. I'm always motivated by, it sounds a bit cheesy, but trying to figure out difficult problems and things that are mentally stimulating. And I've had to find that out through trial and error 
I worked at companies for years and years and things from an external perspective would seem to be going well. And I just had no motivation, but couldn't figure out what it really was. I was motivated by getting that promotion by, you know, getting the pay rise or whatever, but you realize how hollow it is when you get it and it doesn't feel any better and you don't feel any more motivated. Sort of that Faustian pact, I suppose, that you, you make and realize oh, it doesn't really work for me. But as time has gone by, I've realized actually it has to be working on things that are new or that, you know, I'm not sure by the end of the day how I'm going to figure this out. That, that's going to motivate me and see me through. So it's at the end of the day, I can look back and think, ah, I've at the start, I thought this is going to be too hard. I'm not going to be able to do it. And either I was right or I was wrong. But you've learned something about that process along along the way. So I'm really motivated by that. I'm motivated much more than I thought. And I think it's probably the, the driving factor, actually, by just working with brilliant people who do things that I, I can't do and can't even really understand, but who are equally passionate. And you think, OK, you're kind of extending the capabilities of what you can do by working with these sorts of people. You're learning from them all the time. You're seeing that they have a different way of viewing the world. And, and I do find that very motivating as well. So it's yeah, trying to figure out these tricky things with brilliant people is what I think keeps me going. So then moving away from work, then how do you decompress from work? And I wonder, actually, do you? Because if your evenings and weekends are spent doing the newsletters, perhaps you, you don't get time to just sort of take a minute and chill. Yeah, it's kind of the challenge with these sorts of chats as well, Joe. I think I've, I've had quite a few of these and I always hear people talking on them. I think they're they're not necessarily coming with the answers, but they're coming with their answers to, to the question and that that should be somehow illuminating. It's it's a it's a big failing of mine, something that we talk about in, in the house here, of, you know, how, <laughs> how will I start to decompress a bit more? I think if I had a dog, it would really help, but we don't have a garden at the minute. We're just about to move and we will. So ask me in a year, maybe the dog will have done that for me. Maybe I'll just have got the dog stressed as well. And, you know, <laughs> the dog will be out fetching inspiration from me. So sort of going, you know, look at this flower out in the garden. What about that stigma? That could be something you could use as a, a metaphor in your next newsletter. Um, but I, I don't really, I've, I've talked about it recently. I'm always thinking about work. I'm always trying to draw things together. And it's almost like I'm trying to figure something out. Like it'll all become clear one day. It'll, uh, it'll all happen. And the more I think about it, the, the clearer it'll become. And I remember being like that back to, you know, uh, late primary school kind of age and, and just constantly thinking and constantly doing like that. So I've more tried to channel that into a way of working that at least allows me to bring some personality and idiosyncrasy to it as well, rather than just trying to bludgeon that way of thinking into, you know, being head of marketing somewhere where <laughs> I just go mad because you've got this train of thought, but then you've got all these Slack messages just saying, oh, can you give approval on that Facebook ad? And I go, no, I'm trying to figure out here how Beethoven inspired you know, the beat poets. Like, I don't, I can't, I can't think about that right now. Um, so no, there's not a, a huge amount of decompression, but, but I do, I do enjoy going to the theater. I go to like classical music, hence the little Beethoven reference, like going to the opera and that sort of thing. I, I go to the football quite a bit. There's not a huge amount of thought going on when I'm at the football, I suppose. So, you know, it's not, I'm trying to draw a boundary here myself between work and play, aren't there, that I, I, I insist doesn't exist. But um, but there are some some more playful parts. So I go, go to the gym, I play a bit of football, watch some football, you know. There are bits and pieces, but it's not, not a school of thought. 
But I suppose going to going to the football and just having that sort of you know the the catharsis, I guess, of just you know shouting for your team or whatever. That is, in a sense, you know, that's decompression, isn't it? I suppose so. Perhaps it, perhaps it doesn't exist, but perhaps it. Does. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, there are bits there. Maybe it's part of it. It's, it's almost, yeah, that's the thing as well, Joe. That's why when, when you say that, I'm kind of thinking about it because I'm like, does it just become part of this personal myth? You know, that you you try and build that you tell yourself that oh, I don't really decompress, but then you think about it and go, yeah, but I do go to the football, and you know, and I do have days where I just can't be bothered working. You know, <laughs> so. Maybe it is just part of this sort of mess you tell yourself, but it's not actually quite true. So, have you, have you ever experienced burnout? Then, if you're if you are so work intensive, or do you manage um, to keep it at bay somewhat? It's an interesting one because I there was an interesting discussion yesterday going on because someone got in a bit of hot water on Twitter because they asked someone, someone who had a panic attack or something, and they asked them, "What does that feel like?" Because I just get up and get on with it. And he was then on radio saying, well, I didn't understand that was an insensitive phrasing, but I don't really understand it and all this sort of thing. And I thought it was quite quite insensitive. And I don't think he quite realized by the end of it just how insensitive it was to say, say that phrase. But it's the same for me almost with burnout. It reminds me of that because I don't necessarily know what exactly the symptoms of that are. I've certainly had it said to me scores of times, you're going to burn out. But I didn't know what that would actually look or feel like. Um, it was much more likely to happen. And maybe this is my my answer to it, is that it was much more likely to happen when I was working in places where I felt very, very, very frustrated and very restricted in what I could do mentally. So there was lots of work, but a lot of it to me felt like I was trying to explain things that didn't need to, to be explained. I was joining calls that didn't need to happen. Um, a lot of busy work for not much gain. So I was just trying to get that done and out of the way so that we could do something more interesting, but actually it would never end. So my whole life was consumed by this and that really frustrated me. And there would be other people who weren't frustrated by it, who would sort of see it as a weakness of mine that, oh, well, he can't handle the pace. So, well, there's different ways of approaching these things. And let's say we maybe have different minds and different things that we'd like to focus on where they would just act more automatically and just do it all and then leave at 5.30 and not think about work anymore. I still be in the office at 10 or 11, just trying to get all this. Because I just, again, it's that sense of, if I can just get it all done, then I'll have time for myself. But I need to get it all done first and it would never end. But now that I've been working for myself, I don't think I've taken the full advantage of the, the supposed freedom that gives you. I think I'm still in that mentality of, you know, I need to be at my desk at a certain time. I need to work a certain amount of hours. I'm not necessarily getting paid for all those hours, so I don't really need to be. But I think what I find now is that a lot of the work is much more energizing and I'm working with people that I find are much more stimulating and I've, I've found that balance for myself. So I certainly work more hours now than I did then, but I don't feel anywhere near as tired or exhausted. And I, I, I do know of some sense that it's in my control a little bit. I could take a month off and sure, I wouldn't earn a penny, but I'd at least be able to have the time and you know recharge and all of that and it's more my partner that nudges me into but you've got to just you've got to go away for five days this year like you haven't been on holiday for years you've got to just do it and no phone no laptop like you just you just need to and it's always great when we eventually do that but i don't feel the need in the way that i did before so when i was working at those companies i would take a three-week holiday every year and like i did not want to think one second about the office which from my way of working and my way of thinking is a, a bit of a weakness of that 
that situation that I was in. So I don't think so, but I also wouldn't want to denigrate. You know, I wrote in this week's newsletter about how you know, close to, well, just over three quarters actually of people say that they have experienced some symptoms of burnout. So it's a, a massive widespread problem. And I think that's why I'm trying to tackle that a little bit by finding some ways to make work, not just more fun, you know, in terms of giving people rewards or whatever, but make it more effective, make it more efficient and make it more productive. Cause that way I think everybody wins. And if you could go back in time, what would one piece of advice be that you would give yourself? It is a big question. And the worst bit is I've thought about it before because I've seen it in so many of these interviews and I thought, what would that actually be? But I think actually it would be something that I think I, I felt that I knew at the time intellectually, but I didn't know in any sort of experiential way was that the, the most important thing that you can be doing in those early years is developing the kinds of skills that are going to stand you instead for a good stead for the long term so there's a surface layer of skills that we learn and that we really prize which is things like you know learning how to use this software or you know knowing how to make this query to this database or whatever we spend a huge amount of our time on that sort of thing but once you get to a more senior level it just doesn't matter anymore and those those things completely i think kind of disappear you need to know what's valuable and get it out of other people but that's not really what you need. So focusing more on the kind of eternal, people like to call them softer skills, but I'm, I'm also talking about things like statistical literacy, you know, all the things that after eight or nine years working in marketing agencies, I went away and did training for and went to courses for. I wish I'd done all of that right at the very beginning. So it was, for me, actually, it was things like coding. It was things like, um, doing statistics courses and learning how to do all those things. It was managerial models and all of that. But I think understanding at that early age that it does not matter what the person to your left or your right is doing, because in 10 years, they're not going to be there. And you're going to, you could be doing anything different. Think about how you build that central set of skills that you can adapt as you move over time. I think it was of all people, actually, that I, I heard talking about this. I thought it really resonated was never thought I'd, I'd speak of this guy in a good light, but Elon Musk was talking about how he he set out at the beginning to build this, I think he called it, you know, the trunk of his tree of, of skills and knowledge so that if you had that, that was always going to be there, it was always going to matter. So from, you know, things to do with computer science and so on that you could then branch off from over time rather than starting the branch part, you know, being a specialist in using X SEO software that here we are 12, 13 years later, I don't even remember, remember the name of it, hence saying X SEO software, because I don't even know what it's called. But yet it was like an obsessive thing. You know, you've got to be the best at this so that you can get that next promotion that'll give you an extra 10%. Thinking long-term is is a massive, massive benefit to people. And it's, it's difficult to do. We are not wired to do it through our culture or even neurologically, but the people that are able to do that early in their career, I think will make massive gains once they get to that managerial level as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. That really appeals to me that one. <laughs> um, Clark, this has been a, a really, really illuminating chat. I really, really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, what's one top tip that you would like people to take away from this chat? From you know, what's one 
key thing in marks if i can limit you just to the one of just get this right and you'll be okay what's the one tip you'd give the thing that i'm seeing at the moment that i'm seeing an odd situation where i'm seeing quite a lot of businesses are really helpless and that to me is always a good place to gravitate towards and, and try and really nail down and that really is this whole notion of first party data and data privacy. I really think having gone through a process, I've just written an academic paper on this, so I had to go and do lots and lots of research on it and I really didn't want to do it. But I went away and read a lot of the papers that have come out over the last few years from the information commissioner office in commissioner's office in the UK and ones that have come out of the EU and the US as well. I think what marketers have missed is they're reading too many blog posts around this from marketers saying, or just people like myself saying five things you need to know and kind of feeling like, okay, that's it. Go to the source with this. It is going to define everything that happens in marketing in the next few years. And we are looking at it from too much of a marketing centric mindset. We are trying to understand this as a marketing problem and it's not, it's a legal problem. Now I'm not necessarily saying go into huge amounts detail but this these papers are written because they know that marketers should be reading them they're written in plain english and when you do it's a bit of a light bulb moment when you think about the solutions that you might come up with for your business because the people within companies that are now coming forward with things and saying you know and i know this so at columbia university where i'm teaching we're working with businesses huge businesses in the us and they had to come to us with problems that i could work with groups within the class to solve and I don't think I'm, I'm going against the terms of any NDA by saying they're all trying to figure this problem out. And we're talking small businesses, we're talking huge, B2B, B2C. Everyone is asking this, this same question. You know, how do we navigate these data privacy laws and you make creative use of the data we have without stepping on anyone's toes? If you're listening to marketing people trying to tell you what might happen next and what to do, I'd say you're probably listening to the wrong people about this, or at least layer that on top, but start by going to the source and reading all of that, because then you'll, you'll be the person in the room that's able to say, I'm not sure that's going, going to work because the ICO has said this kind of solution won't work. You know, they, they've even made suggestions about why doesn't marketing learn from open banking? How might a solution like that work within the marketing world? And I very rarely hear marketers talking about that. They're just trying to figure out how can we keep tracking and targeting audiences like we do today, tomorrow? And anyone that comes up with a solution, nobody really questions it. So long-winded way of saying, I'm very passionately believing at the moment in the, the power of going to the source of understanding those things and then being the person in the room that's able to be the, basically the arbiter of, of some decent sense when it comes to these solutions. Or when the next provider comes in and says, we found a way to replace cookies, it's just as, as effective you'll be the person that's able to quiz them and you'll look you look pretty good, but you'll also be helping the business in the process. What's the best marketing joke you've ever heard? And by best, I can also mean worst. So, yeah, well, worst is probably going to be about right. But the thing that immediately springs to mind for me is a time when... <laughs> I was working with our, our biggest clients, our biggest SEO clients, going back about 10 or so years. They might be listening, but I think we can all laugh about this now. And we were in a 
a bit of trouble because we, we or someone else, someone else out there, some some ne'er do wells had got us a rankings penalty, and it was a big deal. And we were going in for a massive management meeting to explain what had gone wrong, and we decided I don't know why, but it would be a good idea to frame this whole thing around the Shawshank Redemption, but we would call it the Page Rank Redemption, and we had all the pictures from the movies the whole way through deck and then we had some stuff around it's a full metal jacket we had full meta jacket which didn't even really make much sense where we talked about how we do all these meta descriptions and everything and it was interesting because at the time we were researching marketing jokes we were trying to find like what are the best ones we can put into this you know we need to make this funny we need to cheer them up that, that'll do it and we ended up kind of just making up our own ones to put into it so yeah we, we did have page rank redemption full meta jacket a few other things i think as well they'll definitely come back to me but best jokes i think actually some of the best puns i've heard in in the marketing industry but worse because it absolutely bombed and you just know from slide one that you this corporate client is not here for this at all we could tell because they got the suits in the room and everything and we were you know early 20s turning up to explain this and i'm here to discuss the page rank redemption and it was the one where he's kind of in the rain after he's escaped from prison he's kind of on, on his knees looking up <laughs> We put a little Google sign on them and everything. Um, but yeah, that's that was definitely the worst one, but I think the best as well. Clark, thanks so much. Where can uh, where can people keep up with you? Where can they uh, subscribe to the newsletter? Yeah, so the newsletter is high tech, so it's high comma T E C H and it's on Substack, so it's H I T E C H dot substack dot com. If you go to my LinkedIn page so yeah just search Clark Boyd I think there's like three of us on the whole of LinkedIn you'll you'll know which one's me <laughs> even just from hearing my voice you'll see which one looks like it's probably me and click on there and there's lots of links there because I've got my you know Twitter YouTube even TikTok these days as well so you can find me on there <laughs> thanks so much Clark it's been a brilliant chat thanks for joining me